It takes my breath away. It's so raw. And I remember the first time I heard it, it was, it was similar to hearing the Bad Brains for the first time where, where the Bad Brains were so fast and so outrageous that you kind of started to laugh because you're like, how is this? What is this? This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Beginning with his early work in numerous DC punk bands of the 80s, Guy Picciotto made an immediate mark for himself on the nascent Discord Records scene, with his most prominent work in that period being with the quartet Rites of Spring. However, it was the musical project Picciotto was later involved in that has had the biggest impact on punk culture and the world at large, Fugazi. From their first release in 1989 through six studio albums, including unassailable masterpieces such as 1990's Repeater and 1993's In on the Kill Taker, Fugazi's recorded output and legendary live performances changed the face of modern punk rock, leaving an indelible mark that continues to guide and influence bands both creatively and even ethically today. The band's double frontman approach, in which Picciotto shared not just guitar and vocal duties with Ian Mackay, but also the creative spotlight, lent a wide scope to the band's sound. As for Picciotto specifically, his primal vocal delivery and the intensely rhythmic, frictious guitar playing he employed and that interwove tightly with Mackay, bassist Joe Lally, and drummer Brendan Canty, is to this day wholly and unmistakably his own. The first song Pachoto chose as being formative for him was the Bee Gees' I Started a Joke. I started a joke Which started the whole world crying I guess I was thinking when, you know, kind of trying to think of songs from when I was very young that had kind of big impacts on me and kind of my memory of of music from when I was very young. My parents didn't have a huge amount of records. They had a few that were really important to me, like a Beatles album and a Supremes record, but they didn't have a ton of records. But I would sit in the back of my mom's Maverick and she would drive around town with the radio on and there's certain songs like from the 70s, I was born in 65, so in the early 70s, like there'd be songs like 
Hold Your Head Up by Argent would come on or, you know, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. There were these certain songs that would that are, I can really remember being in the backseat of her Black Maverick and hearing these songs come over the radio. And, um, and one of those was I Started a Joke. And for some reason, it's really – there's a song by this other guy, Gilbert O'Sullivan, called um, Alone Again Naturally. And they seem very kind of linked in my head because of these incredibly overwrought English dude songs that I was – you know, as a young person, I was – I guess I was a very overwrought fancy pants kind of person. And so I think those songs really spoke to me in that way for some reason. And – um and with the Bee Gees, there was a movie that came out that I don't, not a lot of people in the States have seen, but certainly people in England and people in Australia and other friends that I've met have, have also saw this film. It was a film called Melody that came out and it starred uh, these two child actors, Jack Wilde and Mark Lester, who were also in the uh, musical version of the film Oliver, which was a very big film in America at that time. But then there was a, they reunited those two kids in Melody and it's a very strange movie about children who become friends and one of the boys, Mark Lester, falls in love with an, a girl that he sees at his school and doesn't like kind of fall in love with her. He's like, I, I want to get married to her. And he was like a child. And it became this, like his parents couldn't understand, the school couldn't understand and there's all this institutional pressure on this kid and it, and the kids all band together and they, they get married and the movie is like really, really weird, but it's very, very realistically shot and very like non – it treats the kids with real respect. The film is very interesting and the soundtrack is by the Bee Gees and it's got like Bee Gees songs like Melody Fair and To Love Somebody, like really beautiful songs. This song is not in there, but I saw this film as a young person and I was like, that's those are the, that's that I started to joke voice, you know, those those people. And it was like that movie which just really wrecked me and and – I loved it for so many reasons because it was like really emotional and romantic, but it was also really institutionally angry about adults in a way that I really responded to. And I was like, yeah, you know, I loved school and I hated teachers. That was my dynamic. I loved school, hated teachers. And that was kind of the film. I don't know, for some reason, the film really spoke to me and the, the kind of the intensity of the Bee Gees songs also really spoke to me. And I started a joke, I think, is the lyrics are so insane. They're just so bizarre. It's like, you know, it's basically like a very childlike perspective where I think I'm doing this one thing and the world is reacting in the complete opposite way. I'm, I start to cry. The world starts laughing. You know, I try to make a joke. The world starts crying. And then it becomes so insane. It's almost like this Christ thing where I die and now the world can live. And it's like so overwrought and so magnificently psycho that I think for children, it's, I just thought, wow, this is the deepest thing I've ever heard. Like, I just thought it was so profound. Now I look at it, I'm like, man, that is, I don't know why anyone would, would how did this come up? But it's really interesting because in the, in the Bee Gees, the singer of that song is Robin and he tended to sing the more kind of, um, distressed songs, the more kind of anguished Bee Gees jams. And then Barry had the more confident, presentation and then later he would have that kind of incredible falsetto and all those huge hits but it's robin in this one i don't know if you ever see videos of them doing this song it's just so plaintive and so it's just so unreal to me and the fact that the song was such a huge hit is i just find it very peculiar and um and it really informed something in me i think 
And later, when I formed this band called The Brief Weeds, which was a group that I was in with, it was basically the same membership as this band, other band I was in, One Last Wish. Um, and we would get together at various houses and make these tapes that were like little four tracks and eight tracks. Actually, I don't know if we ever got to eight track. It was this four track cassette, I think was the highest, or I'll just a condenser mic boombox. And we'd make these things. And that was the template was doing BG style, super Baroque, super weird pop songs. Um, and we put out two singles on K and the band was, you know, we had always had this distinction between like, this is my real group. And this is, you know, this other thing that we would do, but the other things that we would do, I mean, I was in, I can't even list how many bands I was in the hostages, the popes, the dancing crabs, the brief weeds, Proctor Silex, Blacklight Panthers, uh, truly subtle. I mean, we would go see thief of Baghdad and we would have a whole band that was just, songs about the thief of Baghdad and but brief weeds I think of all of them for me was like the one that I felt was the most um I don't know the tapes we actually made like kind of a kind of amazing sounding uh imitations of 60s English pop but on very limited you know with very limited technology and um and the Bee Gees was in my head, like the template for singing in that way or singing that kind of thing. And, and even though it seemed, you know, the songs are humorous and stuff like that, I think it was actually coming from a deeper, realer place than I think I would have acknowledged at the time. But I was thinking about this actually on the drive over here is that I think a lot of people think of musicians and they think about their, there's like certain aspects of their career or things that are really well known. And it's like the iceberg above the waterline. And then there's all this other stuff that musicians do that either doesn't get recorded or is badly recorded or people just don't know about. That's kind of like the iceberg underneath the water. And it can be just as relevant, but maybe just not as well known. It's like if, like if God was looking at his Wikipedia entry and he's like, wow, everyone's really stoked on human beings and plants and stuff. But I really think, you know, that claustroform bacteria, no one ever talks about that, you know, <laughs> but it's like, that's the kind of way I think about it sometimes is there's things like, like the brief weeds for me, I listen to those songs sometimes and I'm like, they really, I don't, they, they weirdly mean as much to me as anything that I've ever done. And I think a lot of it is because it ties into this kind of nostalgia from, you know, being in that car or you know, hearing those songs and early music, the way it imprints you when you're like seven, you know, six, seven years old is, is I think a, of a different nature than, than later. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, uh, and this has come up in a lot of different contexts talking about books or movies or other things, but the things that hit you at a certain age, a certain young age, um, really stick a lot of times in ways that things that come along later maybe don't Yeah. or more regularly or more deeply somehow. And it's almost like beyond a critical faculty. Like, I don't think that I would, like a lot of those songs, like, you know, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World or Hold Your Head Up, I wouldn't say that, oh man, that's an incredible song, but it kind of doesn't matter. The impact is already established. And those songs, they just have, they have a, uh, yeah, they, it's, an, it's a resonance that's just different from as you get older and you're making distinctions about what's good or bad, you know? Well, and, you know, the Bee Gees are sort of funny because they, had this one this career where they had hits and people knew who they were and and people bought their records and then they had this kind of second stage to their career that sort of wiped out the first stage you know right. everyone and they became sort of synonymous with disco and the falsetto thing and frankly as great as those records are it mm -hmm. sort of 
wiped out all this other stuff that they did that was also great in another way. Well, what's weird about the Bee Gees is I think that I don't think they get a tremendous amount of like critical respect, but then like I saw Nina Simone play in the uh, 80s and it was, I didn't know her material that well, but I was happened to be in Paris and she was playing and I went to the show and she did, she actually covered, I think a couple, at least two or three Bee Gees songs, but that night she did to, you know, to love somebody and it was utterly devastating cover version. She also did, I think I can't see nobody. She did a couple of their songs. Al Green obviously did How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. I mean, there's a lot of respect that was paid to the Bee Gees, I think, in the R&B world. And those songs, those covers really demonstrate kind of the power of that writing. And the funny thing is, I think even I've read interviews with the Bee Gees where they talk about, oh, you know, we were just imitating things and we weren't. I don't even think that they would necessarily make a case for themselves, but it it's almost irrelevant because the songs, I mean, they're kind of un, they're unimpeachably interesting and lyrically simple but strange i don't there's something about them that i think is is you know obviously you can't call them neglected because they're one of the biggest bands of all time but they still seem neglected to me um and even the disco era growing up and you know by the time i was in seventh and eighth grade and starting to get into punk rock and the kind of animosity that uh was directed against the bgs and then i shared you know it was kind of like oh yeah you know that but in your the songs are indelibly, you know, and they're actually very extreme when you think about what they were doing. I don't think there's been anybody who's sung in that range and managed to have hits like that. It's a very aggressive and confident vocal move that I, it's, you know, it's mind boggling, frankly. So yeah, I have a lot of, I have a lot of affection for them. What age would you have been at, at, at this point when you're hearing these songs? Are you, you when were you playing music at a young age or had you not, did that come later? I didn't start uh, playing music probably till I was 12. So this is well before. Uh, we. I didn't come from a particular musical family. We didn't have a piano. We didn't. Um, there were a couple of harmonicas around. My, my dad had been in a harmonica band when he was a kid. But um, there wasn't really... I, I, but I, I think very early on I wanted to be a musician because the Beatles had an impact on me that was like... Um, exactly the same as uh i think a religious awakening where i think i was so the hearing them affected me so profoundly that i like i i really couldn't think about anything else and i remember being at a in i don't know maybe sixth grade we did a school assembly where like we lip sync to a Beatles song with like tennis rackets or something and i remember just feeling like oh this like weird like you know you know weird tremor i was like oh god oh god you know i, I really want to be in a band and i think my problem was i was very and i you know i continue to be kind of not a very um i have no musical intuition i have no pitch i have no understanding really like of so when I started learning guitar I, I learned some basic chording and um but I always felt inhibited by my own sense of my non-musicality or whatever and so I would be in these bands like I think the first group I did was called the chains and we played in eighth grade and I just wanted to like break a few things on stage and and most of the early bands I was in tended to be kind of like play one chord you know it was more about going off and just doing something kind of like upsetting. And 
uh, but it was never considered because I didn't really think I had the potential to do something that was more considered. So I remember playing once at a high school, uh, we had this band called the hostages, which was uh, during the Iranian hostage crisis, which was a national disruption of the American psyche. And it was the one thing you could not make fun of at that time because people had yellow ribbons tied around their trees. Everyone was thinking about the 52 hostages. So we were like, of course, we were like, okay, we're going to be the hostages and we'll wear all yellow. And, you know, I wore a diaper on my head. It was like the most aggressively wrong thing you could do in that political climate. And I remember we played at this and this teacher came up to me later, this teacher who had liked me, this English teacher. And he, he almost looked like he was going to cry. And he was like, he's like, that was so terrible what you did. And you could have shown these people how intelligent punk rock is. And instead you did that thing. And in my heart, I was so happy. I was like, you. I was like, you know, he was like, what about the clash and all these bands that have something to say? And I had nothing to say except that I wanted to be disruptive. I did not care at all about having anything to say. And I didn't even register the potential for having something to say for quite a long time. And I think it was, I remember going to some minor threat rehearsal because I went to school with some of the guys um, who were in the band. And I remember being at the rehearsal and seeing how serious they, they were working and how serious the music was and having this revelation of like, oh my God, you know, there's like, there's actually a potential to do something that's as good as anything that's ever been done. And I remember when In My Eyes came out the single and I heard it and I just being like, utterly flabbergasted by like how, I mean, the song is like one of the most perfect indictments. It's like, it's categorical in its indictments. It like targets everything that you could have in your head as a young person and it rips up every pretense and it was so affecting to me to hear that but it took me many many more years to realize that I could try to do something serious too The second song Pachotto described as being crucial to his artistic development was early British punk band Discharge's song but after the gig. So around the time I saw the minor threat practice and I started, you know, um, I got into punk rock around 1979 when I was about 12 and a half, 13 years old. I started going to shows. Um, but the first like actual, like I was in a lot of bands that played one time and were just basically like, you know, like the hostages or whatever. But the first band I did that actually played shows out of town and played shows around, uh, DC was this band called Insurrection. Um, and Insurrection was basically, um, it was an offshoot of the band Deadline who were a hardcore band that were on Flex Your Head and, um... The bass player, Mike Fellows, and I hung around Deadline all the time. And every time, for oftentimes, Deadline would finish their set and we would jump on stage and kind of bum rush the stage and just play like an E chord and scream in the mic. And that was what Insurrection was originally. And then gradually it became a real band. And I would say the total template for that band was Discharge. Um, I think Discharge are one of the greatest I can, I mean this totally unironically. I think they're one of the greatest bands of all time. And I think that there, there's something about, I think about them as being a classic in the sense that they had a, in the similar to the Smiths in a way, they had a very 
classic visual presentation, like all the Smith's records there of a piece, and they, they kind of hold together as this kind of statement. The early discharge material was exactly the same. They had this black and white visual aesthetic that was really strong. Almost every song, I'd say 85% of their songs are about war or the realities of war or uh, the destructiveness of war. There's like this kind of monolithic theme that they had. And then the music itself was the recording of their recordings are so, I mean, I, when I put on this, you know, when I listened to this song, when I put on the seven inch before I came down to do this interview, I still takes my breath away how extreme, but after the gig sounds to me, like I, it just, it takes my breath away. It's so raw. And I remember the first time I heard it, it was, it was similar to hearing the bad brains for the first time where, where the bad brains were so fast and so outrageous that you kind of started to laugh because you're like, how is this? What is this? It was so, but the, the difference was the bad brains had this swing and this musicality discharge is like, it's like the step beyond that where it's almost atonal and it's so brutal and the singing is so raw. I just, I don't know for, for us discharge was just, it just was like, wow, this is, this is about as outer edge as you can get and still retain a sense of being a hit. Like their songs to me are incredibly catchy, like doomsday ain't no feeble bastard. These are songs that are just like lodged in my brain as like, but it takes you a while to learn the language to hear the hook, you know? So it's like, you have to, I had to, I listened to, but after the gig in that first seven inch over and over again, like trying to penetrate the sound until it became self evident. And then it started to feel like pop music in my head. Like that's the way I feel about them now. You know, I saw them live and they were pretty good live, but there's nothing comparable to what the record sounded like. I think that the records, something about the production and the ferocity and the mysteriousness of the records was a little bit um, impeded by seeing them play live. But uh, so that so that record, I think about a lot as being kind of like the kind of plank of the first group that I was in. And and it was basically discharged this band Venom, who were like English black metal and motorhead it was kind of this like very you know heavy unfortunately insurrection as a band was not as good as any of those groups <laughs> and um you know we made one recording which we've never allowed anyone to hear like discord let us they financed a recording that no one i don't think anyone's ever heard it except the people in the band um though actually you know i put up i put it up I don't think it's as bad as I think it was at the time, but I think at the time the bands in Washington were so profoundly good. I mean, Bad Brains, The Faith, Untouchables, My Threat, all those void for sure. Um, the standard was so high that I think when we, we just thought in our heads we were in that league and then we made the tape and we realized that we really weren't, you know. And we were the, you know, we'd come out of Deadline who were, I thought were tremendous. And then I just thought it was going to be a next sta- step to that. And it, it didn't really feel like that at all to me. And I think the disappointment of that feeling when the band broke up, I was, I was so upset and I really was like, well, I guess that's it, you know, but it kind of fueled the impulse that created rights of spring. So it was like after insurrection, just like having this feeling like I just want to do something I think it was finally like it settled into my head. Okay, maybe I can do something that's like more substantial in some way. But um, but discharge, man. Well, here's an amazing story. It's like we got back in the in the old days before everyone had cell phones and stuff. We would 
you know, people would trade stolen uh, phone card numbers so you could make long distance phone calls. And we got one. And our friend John, we would go to this payphone in Q Street and we would call Clay Records, which put out the discharge records. And the guy who produced the records would answer the phone. And we would all be around the phone in Georgetown, you know, like, oh my God, he's talking to, he's talking to, he's talking to Mike Stone over at Clay Records, you know, ask him questions about discharge. It was kind of, un, you know, it was an unbelievable feeling. So that was kind of like, there was a certain, it was weird. There's these English bands like Blitz put out these amazing sounding records. And for a little while, that music really, really spoke to, to me in a way. Um, I don't think the music was as sophisticated or as like, like bad brains to me is like on another level, but this stuff, there was something about the kind of like just basic brutality of these records that really, um, that was really inspiring. And when you're like 15, 16 years old, like I was, that, that was, I think there's a sudden surge that happens when you, you, you're at that age where you just feel this just outrageous amounts of unfocused energy and rage and all this kind of stuff. And that music, that music really was really, it felt like the mirror of that, you know, it felt appropriate. You bring up something really interesting, which is that, especially in the, you know, pre-internet days, uh, and maybe this still happens and I'm just too old to really tap into it, but you would find something like that, you know, a band like Discharge or one of those records that, you know, looks so different and alien to what you were used to. And it was literally like a portal into another world. You know, it was like, there's this other place, this other way of being, this other way of living. And I don't have any, but there, but here's evidence of it, you know, that somehow right. has made it to me. Yes. And the best thing is like the mistakes that you made in your interpretation of what it was. It's almost like, I mean, that's why I almost wish I'd never seen Discharge, even though when they came to town, it was as if, you know, you know, it was like, you know, as big for us as it would have been, you know, for the Rolling Stones to come in town for the generations before us. For us, it was just like, oh, my God, they're here. But in a way, if I'd never seen them, it almost would have been better because the 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 feeling of those seven inches and just listening to them, I mean, it just was, you know, it just was trans trans trans. Trans, transportive, you know, and, and it's almost like you didn't want them to walk the world as immortal, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that. You just, cause I mean, I think about them, like their names, Cal, Rainey, Tez and Bones. I mean, that for us was like John Paul, George and Ringo. It's like they, they'd only listed their, their name, their first names on there. So, you know, it was like Cal, Rainey, Bones, Tez, you know, and on the backs of the records, you know, they would say recorded in three hours and we'd just be like, whoa, you know, that's, that's right. Recorded in three hours. That's totally cool. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you bring you bring up something else that's really interesting in that discharge and some of their cohort. You know, these days people talk a lot about your brand. You know, even if they're being sort of ironic, mm -hmm. but they had such a strong brand. I mean, and that whole look, that whole identity, to the point where you can still go to London and see, you know, folks with mohawk spikes and or Liberty spikes and, you know, the studded jacket and the sleeves and everything. It was just such, um, it was such an identity, uh, waiting to be taken up or waiting to be responded to. Yeah. And, but I think discharge is, a, is, a, a, you know, there was plenty of bands kind of like them, like GBH, all these other kind of groups that were similar, I guess. What made discharge different was the relentlessness of the, of the lyric, 
and the constant return to the same subject matter, which was nuclear war and Armageddon. And I mean, but after the gig is, is a slightly different song and the lyrics, I still can't really quite make up what the stance is. It seems like it's about like, but after the gig, we just go back to being lambs to the slaughter, you know, and we're in this space where we can scream and, you know, but afterwards we just return. It was, it's kind of a, it's a super negative, harsh kind of tune, but most, you know, the rest of that record is like, you know, they declare it war, realities of war. It just something about that made them seem obsessive in a way that a lot of those other kind of like the exploited or GBH and these other groups seemed a bit more random and um, just something so austere about discharged and, 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 and the look of the records and, and again, the production, the production, like the bass at the beginning of ain't no feeble bastard is so, is so unbelievable to me. I think a lot of those records got remastered or something when they got put to CD. It just doesn't sound the same. Like the original seven inches, I mean, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a big audiophile maniac, but there's something about the sound of those original records that's just really, it's really special. The final song chosen by Pachotto as being essential to him was Princess Tiny Meats, A Bun in the Oven. Maybe I should announce it, shall I? A bun in the oven. This one is around the era where I was in this band called Happy Go Licky, which was the band that I was in right before Fugazi, and it was composed of the same members of Rites of Spring. And this was a single that was was pretty important to, the, to, to Happy Go Licky, and it comes from a time when I was working in a record store called Yesterday and Today Records in Rockville Pike. And Brendan and I worked there, and um, we would just... We were really, really, we were at the point where, we, you know, it was kind of the post discharge was probably like the point where I had shrunk my perspective to like the thinnest tunnel. And then Happy Galicky was probably the point when I had expanded my intake to the widest it could possibly be because in the record store, all these different things would be coming in and we'd be checking them out. We'd be like, man, check out this Scritti Politi record or check out these early Scritti Politi singles or. One band we really got into, which is very kind of led, to, I guess, to Princess Tiny, was this band called Man to Man. And because there was two things happening at the same time, I think we started getting really interested in more minimal sounds and hip hop was just starting. So you had like Schooly D in Philadelphia, you had like Grandmaster Flash, like there was all this and then Public Enemy eventually coming. All those bands, we were like, whoa, we felt like that was kind of the next step of something very extreme and kind of broken down and cool. So we would listen a lot to like those records um you know the message by grandmaster flash was big and white lines which we ended up covering and uh parkside by schooly d was really big for us so so those records and then there was this band man to man who were uh two brothers two gay brothers who had come out of the band the fast who were part of the early i mean mid to late 70s new york punk scene but man to man was like stripped down kind of like um really early kind of club disco 
music and they had this song called male stripper. And when it came in, we were like, Whoa, there's this 12 inch male stripper. And we just used to play it over and over again. And we had dances at parties at our house. We just play male stripper for like six hours and just dance to it. And the lyrics are just like, I was a male stripper in a go-go bar over and over again. And this kind of pounding beat. And we were like, Whoa. And we got into this band Nitzareb for a little while, which were kind of like industrial dance stuff. We just like kind of like these random groups that we would get into. And then the princess tiny meat seven inch came in and I was like, that's, that name is incredible. What is this? And, and we put it on and it just was one of those things where with no information, except the material that was on the record, I was like, this is one of the greatest things I have ever heard it because it was so outrageously strange and the sounds didn't, I can't tell what the instrumentation is. I can't tell. There's only like maybe four lyrics in the whole song, but it starts off with this really confident, you know, like, shall I now, I, you know, I announce it, shall I a bun in the oven? And then it kicks in and then there's this kind of like, you know, jazzy drum beat. And then this wall of like this huge wall of, reverbed out guitar and I don't know we just thought it was amazing and and we didn't have any idea who they were or what they can't you know I think last week I looked it up and found out that there was some connection to the Virgin Prunes I've never known that my entire life um there was a 12 inch that came in with the singer on the cover naked except for a pillow strapped around the torso like fully naked and it just was really extreme and we were we were really there was a compilation and a lot of this stuff was just like super noisy and but this one single I think is is perfect to me I don't know there's something about it again where it becomes it becomes pop in your head like I could, it's another one of those songs that just is like it just it felt perfect and how big a licky I think was a real that band. I just think we were pulling in a lot of stuff that had been very different from, I think we were trying to, you know, we just wanted to play more improvisationally. We wanted to play more stripped down. We wanted to play with more, um, um, kind of basic, like really basic groove in the drums and bass, like really basic. And, and we just wanted to have a different, freedom in what we were singing and doing and we just wanted to get somewhere different and so i think for people who were fans of righteous spring or whatever they would come see the band and it felt i think initially very off-putting and strange but to us it was really about both those groups seemed to me actually very identical because we were it was really about the four of us and how close we were as friends and how we would be how obsessive we were about music that we were into and then how how inward looking the groups were both those bands until i joined fugazi i was never in a group that had any sense of perspective about being a functional working musician like like right to spring we we played so few shows a happy go look we played so few shows and i but i never remember thinking of that as being even of interest or of note, because I was just like, we were rehearsing all the time. We were playing music all the time, all the time. We were just making tapes constantly. And occasionally we would get offered a show and we would play a show and we would do it. But I never had this idea like, oh, we, you know, I just didn't understand. Like, ultimately, I feel a lot of regret about it. I wish, I wish I'd had some other kind of perspective, but the, the musical 
climate was, it's, it's just so different. There was never this idea that you were going to become like, I never thought about it as like, this will be my living or I will, I will always be, I just was like living entirely in the moment and trying to enjoy, uh, this kind of camaraderie and this kind of uh, conversation that was happening on a really kind of local limited level, even within the local level, it was even more limited by this kind of like cocoon that we had put ourselves in. Um, so for me, it feels, I, I don't know the, the, those bands in that time are really special to me, but I also have this feeling of like, might have should have gone into a van and gone out and tried to do something. It's like, it just didn't occur to us, you know? And, um, once I started doing that later, I, I really realized that it would, had been a mistake a little bit, but, um, at the same time it a lot, you know, it just was when you're young and you don't, you know, it's a very volatile mindset of young people trying to keep everyone on the same page was, was not something that was ever going to happen. But, um, it took having been in five or six bands and then having them break up to like kind of forge the mentality of that. I just don't want to have to keep starting again, you know, it's like, but, um, but, but so the tiny me thing is really special to me just because it really remember, reminds me of this time again, like you're saying of like limited information and then finding something which you're just like, no one has ever mentioned to you. Not a single soul has ever discussed it. And all of a sudden you're like, you're just, yeah, you're, you've, I'm glad I did. I don't, I mean, I'm almost sad that I learned something in this last week when I, you know, I'm like, I almost don't want to know. I just want to have the record and then listen to it and have that feeling of, 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 uh, strangeness, you know, and that record, it just feels really, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm surprised it's not more known or more popular. I mean, every, I'd never heard anyone discuss it really. So I've, I'd, I've never really known anyone else who owned it. Um, we shared the one copy amongst ourselves, you know, and then, uh, I don't know. I don't know if they were popular, if they played shows or anything, but, but I think it's, I think, I think they're great. I think it's a great, great record. Do you still have that experience, um, with anything like that same kind of intensity of finding things and being like, what is this? You know, just baffled by it. This happened to me. This is kind of like, this is just goes to show how off the radar I am. Cause this is not something that's particularly obscure, but when I was playing with uh, Vic Chesnut, we were on tour in Europe. I was, I was in a band with him and members of Godspeed you black emperor and silver Mont Zion. It was like this group who were backing up Vic on, on a tour. And we had a day off in Hamburg and we were staying at the, hanging out at the apartment of the guy who was booking our tour. And someone put on a record and it was like the sun was going down we were just all really tired and we were hanging around the apartment and it was like dim light in the apartment and just one of those kind of beautiful moments, you know, it's like all, you know, blue light in the room. And then someone put on this record that I'd never heard before. And I was like, this is the greatest record I've ever heard. I was so blown away by it. It was Ghost Tropic by Song Zahaya, who I'd heard the name, maybe I'd never heard any music. I didn't know what, I didn't know anything about Jason Molina or anything, but that record, I just was like, I love the way this sounds. There's so much space and it's so, it just fit the moment so perfectly. And I just was like, really like, kind of like, I really can't wait to get home. I'm going to try to find this record because I love it so much. The next day we flew to Ireland and we're sound checking. This guy walks into the room during our sound check with this big hat on. He's standing there. And I'm like, 
just being weird. And I'm like, we're working, you know, trying to get the sound together. We have this big band. It's always, our sound checks were always kind of difficult. We're trying to get it together. And this guy's just standing in the middle of the room, kind of smiling. And it was Jason Molina had shown up at the gig the very next day. I'd never heard of the guy before in my life. And there he was. And he knew Vic. So they started talking and he came out to dinner. And I really regret this now because he's passed away, but I didn't, I just kind of sat there and I was like, I'd never got a chance to really talk to him. You know, he he was kind of like, you know, it was a really big band. There was like eight of us, nine of us on tour. So he was on the other side of the table and he kind of hung out. And I just wish I'd gone up to him and said like, you know, that record you made really blew me away. As I found out later, people think that record sucks. People think it's his worst record. And I think it's incredible. And it's just another one of those things where people just like, oh man, you know, he, he did this weird thing, but then, you know, man, the one you really should get is the other one. I've, listened, I've started getting into all the other music. He put out a bazillion records. I think they're all really good. But my relationship with that one was always going to be different because it's the first one I heard and there's something I think really just really wicked about the way it was recorded and 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 because of again that sense of mystery that I didn't know what it was and the cover was black and there was no information on it and it just in that moment it just sounded like a, the most perfect record I'd ever heard you know and and it was weird I remember after that night I was like well maybe I'll run to that guy sometime again and I never did and it sucks but I I really, I feel like, wow, that was a gift because now there's all this music to check out. And I know this is like a late pass because everyone on earth knows who he is and knows all his records, but I didn't. I just was, I just was introduced to it there. And, but I often have that feeling about people, the kind of common consensus about records is, you know, like the adverts, a big record for me when I was growing up was Cast of Thousands, which was the second adverts record, which people hated. People thought, you know, adverts was Gary Gilmore's eyes and the, you know, I love the first record. I love every adverts record, but the second one is a masterpiece and it's weird. It's horribly produced, I guess, but it makes it sound like nothing else. And it just is such an incredible record. My place, the songs are amazing. And I think people, there's so many weird like accidents that happen where critics suddenly decide something and then people just kind of, it just becomes like the received wisdom about what a thing is good or bad. And Sometimes things get elevated that, and sometimes, you know, I think a lot of people, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, in time, the good will out and the great songs will be recognized. And that's like talking about the marketplace. Like the, it's like talking about how like capitalism is going to eventually figure out things in a proper way. That's a bunch of crap. It's also like thinking that there's like some beneficent God who's like sifting through cultural shit and deciding like, you know, this, you know, brush this off. This is actually pretty good. Some things never get heard again, you know? Some things never get reevaluated. Again, some things never get recorded. Some things don't, some, so I don't believe that. And I don't, and I think a lot of times, and it may well be that Ghost Tropic is his worst record. I don't know and I don't care because to me, it's, it's just incredible. And it, in that moment, I mean, it's never sounded as great to me as it sounded in that apartment and never will again, but there's something about, um, there's something about the way that certain things sound in certain moments. That's just like, that's its own economy, you know? Uh, you know, I completely hear what you're saying about the the sort of that some things, you know, don't maybe shouldn't be obscure and will remain that way. At the same time, I've lived long enough 
to watch as almost everything I thought was uncool when I was younger, including the Bee Gees, mm-hmm. um, come along and people take another look. And whether they're just bored with whatever it is they're listening to at the time and, you know, a Bee Gees record is cheap or, you know, um, almost, uh, you know, all sorts of dance music and, you know, the current boom of reissuing all these old private press records and all this old gospel stuff that, that never got circulated back in the day. It just seems like, you know, and maybe none of us will live long enough to experience the full cycle, but eventually everything, you know, in the future, everything will be cool for 15 minutes. I guess so, but I think that's more a function of technology, really, that now with the internet and it's like an, it's like, it's like a hole that's too big to fill. So people have to constantly be shoving content into the hole because, there's just so many holes, you know, and there's, there's, and they're just so people, it's like a scramble to find something to put in the hole. That's why everything is turned into content. But I guess my point is that it's in a weird way. I I kind of do have the sense, like I've started to feel like opinions, opinions have become like commodified in this way. Like people's, purchasing decisions feel like political decisions to them, you know, and people like what they wear or what they do. It's like, there's this kind of conflation of everything that feels really wrong to me. And it's made me feel like wanting to divorce myself from having an opinion, unless there's a relevance, a real world relevance to that opinion. I just think a lot, I just, I don't know. There's a lot of, uh, I feel like there's a shift happening and it's very, it's, it's just very strange, but I know what you're saying. I mean, there is this, there's this kind of like, and a lot of that stuff that gets unearthed, I find great pleasure in it. You know, I I find that very satisfying. I'm like, Oh yeah, you know, let, let the dog have its day. And you know, I, I I hear things new that, that, that give me pleasure. I'm not saying that I'm above it or in any way, cause I'm not, I mean, as within it as everyone is, but I do feel that there's like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's something different that there's like, music as like a reality and then music as an experience. There's like tons of music being made all the time, but how you experience it and its impact on you is always going to be individual, you know? And, and, and so that's why I guess, I guess one thing that's kind of positive about the internet is it's kind of exploded a lot of the hierarchies around who gets to make those calls. The things like pitchfork still have enormous amounts of power for unknown and odd reasons, but, um, I don't know. So yeah, I, 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 I take your point, but it's, I, I, I don't know, but it's, 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 it's weird because it's, I do feel like in a weird way, it's, it's, it's made me feel unbalanced in this moment. Like I think for a long time I made music out of a sense of community, not in any kind of like grand fluting sense, but just out of the sense of like, you know, being within with certain people or playing in a certain way with people. And, and I think I, I, I don't know, for some reason, like this moment, it's been much more difficult for me to kind of find some structure in my forehead, my head to how to make music now. And I don't really know why that is, but something feels different to me, but it, you know, I don't know what it is. I was going to ask, as you mentioned earlier, uh, playing music all the time mm-hmm. and, you know, at least outwardly uh, you've been somewhat quiet for some time now. Do you still play music a lot? I play music every day. I have a, I record every week 
I've been, I've never stopped making music since I was 14 years old. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. The iceberg is big, you know, not everything's above the surface. So it's like, I, you know, I make music with friends. I make music by myself. Um, I produce records for people. I've as, I'm as involved and invested in music now in my just daily life as I've ever been, you know, but the difference is it's like, I don't, you know, I mean, I've got a lot more things going on in my life or whatever, but at the same time, I don't, I'm always looking for like, uh, like for example, like, you know, rights of spring and all those groups with those, that group of people was like a, that was a relationship. And then Fugazi was certainly a relationship, you know, 20 years of my life or whatever. And then since then I've had a few other things like the, the experience of working with Vic Chesnut was absolutely on par with anything any relationship I've ever had that playing with those people playing with him on the two records that I made with him meant as much to me as anything. And, and that's just about that relationship, you know? Um, and, um, and I can, t- I have those relationships now. I, I work with this band, Zylorus White, who I sometimes play music with, but mostly I produce them. And that experience, that relationship is, is again, it's like one of, another one of those things where I'm like, I'm learning things, I'm experiencing the friendship of these people who are inspiring to me, and so yeah, I mean, I, and, and uh, yeah, so I don't know, but so I would, you know, I would love to be in, in a band in a certain way, maybe that will or won't happen again, I don't know, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't affect the way that, uh, yeah, the, the way that it work, really. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>